but we still got halfway to go. Which way do you want to look at it? Whichever way feels better, right? Um, dates are getting into November's now, so I'm actually putting stuff up in there for November. Um, we have a quiz scheduled for today. If I get through everything that I need to for the quiz, I will stop and do the quiz. If I do not, then I will do the quiz will be Friday. So it uh, just depends on whether I've gotten through all the material. I'm not going to give you the quiz if I haven't gotten through everything for it. So I'm sorry? Or if there's insufficient time, I'm not going to give you the quiz if I finish with five minutes left in the class. Then I'll do something else and not give you five minutes to try to complete the quiz. Unless you want to get it up. No. no. It's not multiple choice. <laughs> okay. Second article review is due on Friday. And then homework five, which I gave out before, is due on, uh, on the following Friday. And then the newer stuff I've added in, uh, quiz five covering chapters 11 and 12, which we'll be starting on uh, probably by Friday. We'll get to start on chapter 11. will be the end of this month. And then exam three uh, scheduled for uh, the first week in November. So we're running right about on schedule. I actually have on my original syllabus, exam three is scheduled for the previous week. So during that week, so we're only we're within about a week. So we're actually doing really good. We're not like way behind or way ahead or anything. We're right about, right about on track. And exam three will cover chapter 10 that we're working on and then 11 and 12 com coming up here. So questions, questions? No, no? All right, well I promised you these last time I said I'd wait and I don't know if we have many more people here but I'm going to go ahead and give, them, give out the extra credit stuff anyway so people have a chance to, to look at it. Yay! Or boo, right? Um, there's a couple of assignments that I normally give each semester that you have an option of doing. Uh, the first one, the first one is a chance to replace an exam grade. So it's another assignment that you can do that replaces an exam grade. Whether you do this or not really depends on how well you do on the exams. If you've done well on the exams, it's not worth your time. Honestly, if your lowest grade on the exam is a 40, this will replace an exam grade, meaning if you went up to a 50, you gain 10 points. So it's not, extra, it's not pure extra credit, but it's a chance if you had a really poor grade on an exam to do something to replace that. So the worst you did on your worst exam, the more it can help you. But it just replaces that grade. It's, the idea is just to do some kind of creative project where you can you know, write something, you can do a video. I've had people do musical uh, creations, uh, something related to astronomy, and something showing the science. So don't just write a story or something about astronomy, but put some of the science in, something about you, know, you learned about the star or something. Keep that kind of information in it. That's what I'm kind of looking, looking for. Uh, the key one with that was a lot of people, I know a lot of people will do like a movie one and I'll get a nice review of a movie. That doesn't help. I want to talk about the science that was in, in the movie. That's what I'm looking for. And it don't just tell me how it was great and how they did this and they did that. Put the science part into it is what I'm really looking for. If that's the one you choose to do. If you do drawings or something, uh, I've had people do a painting, you know, write a page explanation. You know, something telling me what your painting is so that I know that you've, you've learned something out of it too. And I have that. You've got about a month for that. That's due on November the 18th. So, um, again, it's completely optional. So if you don't want to do it, uh, you'll end up with five exam grades and this will end up getting dropped so it won't hurt you. It can't hurt you to do it either. But depending on how you've done in the exams really is a matter of whether you want to spend the time. You know, if your worst grade on the exam is a, say, a 35. 
You could get a 50 on this, you drop the 35, and you get 15, you get up to new 15 extra credit points essentially. Certainly can't hurt you, but how much work, how much else do you have to do, and how much is it going to help you, make sure you take that into, into account. Questions? Yes? Uh, per, no, per, percent, percent, not percent-wise. Oh, point, Point-wise. Point oh. if, you, if, you, if your lowest grade was, say, a 68, then that's a 34. Yes. So you can actually get a 50, and that would drop the 34 for 50, for up to 50. Of course, there's no guarantee you get 50 on that. Right. So, but yeah, so it, it will certainly help. It cannot hurt you. And it will always help you, unless you've got a 50, unless your lowest grade is a 50. No. Okay, so unless your lowest grade is a 50, it's not even then it won't, still won't hurt you, but why are you going to do it for, a point, for, a, for a no points? Now the other one is pure extra credit. So this one is just pure extra credit points. 25 extra credit points. Um, boy, too much extra credit. I should quit this, huh? I also know how many people end up doing these from experience having done these for several years now. Uh, yeah. Boy, see, see what happens when we get a day off. Uh, this one is a pure extra credit assignment. Um, as you know, I podcast all the classes. And I also do some other podcasts. And this one asks you to go and look at one of the other podcasts that I started earlier this year on the history of astronomy. You can go into the iTunes store and search for uh, Wagner Historical Astronomy. It'll come up as a set of podcasts. There's like... 200 in there. Don't feel like you have to download and listen to all of them. I don't want you to feel like you've got to do that. That's not the, the assignment. The assignment is to look through, at least get the headers on them, and look through and pick out one that sounds interesting. So it's, it's the history of astronomy. So there's, some, there's things about Stonehenge. I talk about some of the different ancient Greek astronomers. I talk about astronomers of the Middle Ages, the Renaissance, uh, going up to uh, spacecraft. So I just put one up on like Voyager 2. I'm into the late 70s and early 80s, 70s, early 80s right now. So you could pick one of those. I do want you to listen to one of them and then just kind of write me a summary and get some points. What were the important things that I talked about? What can you research and find that I didn't talk about in there? So maybe I missed some things. I mean, certainly, I, they're about 10-minute podcasts. You don't have to listen to me for three hours. You know, they're all, I keep them, they range between about 8 and maybe 12 minutes, depending. So, tried to keep them relatively short uh, and consistent. But select one, select one to do. No, you can't do 10 of these and get 250 points. So, oh, goodness. But 25 points is still 25. This is, and this is pure extra credit. So, this means if you got a 25 on an exam, I add 25 extra points, and now you got a perfect score on the exam. So, that, this, this is pure extra credit on it. Um, I also look for you, I say, to ask for a couple other things. And then I'm looking for you to look at something else that I didn't mention. So something else from that same time period. Uh, could be another astronomer. I certainly didn't talk about everybody. I certainly hit the main ones. But you know, look for another astronomer and find something else that they did from the same time period. So if you're doing Galileo, then don't pick out an astronomer who lived in the 1900s. You know, pick out an astronomer from their same, you know, who were contemporaries, who would have worked, been in, living at the same time. Yeah, Galileo was yeah, 15, late around the 1600s, somewhere in that range. I'm not going to be too. I mean, if you're not sure, ask me. I'll tell you for tell you if you are. But like, you're not going to be able to do Galileo and Tycho because I'm asking you to do one I didn't do, and you'll have to look at the list of the ones that I've I've done too. So you won't be able to pick out 
someone else who's probably you're bringing, looking for more, more obscure astronomers and telling me what they did. And I've broken down the number of points that I give you there, a certain number of points, one point for this, two points for that, and it's up to a maximum of 25. Um, I do ask, because I'll be giving this to all my classes, I don't want everybody picking the same one, so once you select one, email me and let me know before you do all the research and I'll then tell you, yes, that's yours. I, I think I'll allow two you know, per, I've got about 100 students, so if I do about two, there's like 200 things. I know about half of the class won't bother. Maybe you all will and surprise me. I, I, wouldn't, I won't complain because I find them interesting. But that's typically what's been done, when, been done in the past. So you can email that if you want to email three and say, here's number one, two, and three. I can give you your top one that's still available. Don't just give me three. Give me three ranked, though. Don't just give me, I want to do this or this or this. I'll consider you the first one you put as your top choice. Because otherwise, I don't know which one you want to do. <laughs> so. And that will be due the week after. I didn't make them do it the same time. That's due the week after. So it gives you a little bit of extra time. So you can work on this one on November 17th. And you can work on this one on November 24th. Right? We know how it works. So. All right. So. Questions? Say take a look at them. Let me know if there's questions before. So I try to give you a little bit of extra time to work on those. Give you about a month here to work on them. All right, well, let's jump on to the picture of the day for today and then into the class materials. Uh, picture for today is three galaxies in the constellation of Draco. Draco is a constellation in the northern hemisphere, so it's one you can actually go out and see in the evening sky. It's the dragon with a very long tail, and it's all wound up around the north celestial pole, so it kind of winds between the two dippers. But there's not really any real bright stars, mostly very faint stars, so it doesn't jump out, jump out at you like the Big Dipper kind of stands out, and it's got a seven very bright stars there. But this is within a very sm a small portion of that. We actually have three galaxies very close together, and they are, how far away are they? About, oh, I just saw it. 100 million light years from the Earth, so not too far, not too far away, relatively close, galaxy-wise speaking, about 100 million light years away. They're all pretty close together, but we see in this two different types of galaxies. There is an elliptical galaxy here towards the center with the central bulge, and you can see some fainter area out around it. And there are two spiral galaxies, and you see one here is seen edge-on. So it's turned almost flat to us, so we're seeing the edge, of it, the edge of it, the very thin portion. The other one is, again, a spiral galaxy, very much like this one, but we just happen to be seeing it from a different orientation. We're looking face straight down on it, and we can actually see the spiral arms. So you can trace out spiral arms here going from the center towards the outer portion. You see that the spiral arms are very blue. The blue is because that's where stars are forming. So you have very hot stars that have formed there. And they illuminate the spiral arms with a bluish glow. So you'll see that blue in the spiral arms. You don't see that at all in the elliptical galaxy. Elliptical galaxies have essentially no gas and dust in them. So they're not forming stars. So these stars that are formed here, those hot stars only last millions of years, 10 million years. Well, that's forever, right? 10 million years, goodness, that's how long the class seems like it lasts, right? Yeah, I know. Uh, so 10 million years worth, you know, but if they last 10 million years, astronomically speaking, what's 10 million years out of 10 billion that the galaxies have been around? 
That's nothing, right? That's like that. So in terms of galaxies, those stars that would have formed and been that big and massive here are long since gone and dead. So they don't exist anymore. So the only stars that you see are the yellow and redder stars, the cooler stars. All the big blue ones are gone. So you see that kind of difference between the galaxies. And we will, as we get to chapter 14, we'll start talking about our galaxy. And then chapter 15, we'll talk about uh, the other galaxies and look at the different types in a little bit more detail. You might also notice that that blue doesn't really go down towards the center. Uh, in most of the spiral galaxies, you don't see a lot of the blue stars forming. They're usually further out towards the center. The gas and dust has been used up, and you don't get a lot of new stars having formed. What kind of stars? They would be O, o stars, primarily O stars. Oh, the B stars would last a little bit longer, uh, but not a whole lot. But the O stars are primarily the biggest, biggest blue stars that we see, and the ones that are primarily illuminating everything we see here. Yeah? So in between the galaxies, what's that? Nothing? Nothing. Hardly anything? It's like what's in between the stars in our galaxy? Nothing. What's in between the planets in our solar system? Pretty much nothing. Yeah, there's bits and pieces, and there's, you know, a hydrogen atom here, maybe another one over here, a couple meters away. But Oh, there always could be. There could be well, rogue planet between the galaxies would be a little harder just because of the distances within the stars. Yeah, you could within a galaxy. Uh, you could certainly have things like rogue stars that may have gotten thrown out of there. But essentially, it's a complete vacuum. There's really nothing there. Not mean that there couldn't be the odd some object, you know, some planet got thrown out, some star got thrown out of the galaxy and has been traveling for billions of years and it's traveling between them. But you know, that's like the tiny speck of dust traveling between one galaxy here and one galaxy, you know, to Earth to scale, thousands of miles, you know, thousands of miles away. Is there really anything between those two? Yeah, there is. There's a speck of dust. Big deal, right? Anything else? So I thought they'd be asking more questions, trying to delay the quiz. So, oh, there he goes. <laughs> Someone doesn't want to take a quiz today. I see. How would If it doesn't have, if, well, there are no atoms in space, but there's still propulsion in the vehicle. And by Newton's third, Newton's third law, if you throw something out one end of the vehicle, you go in the other direction. Yeah. Right? So you propel out like a rocket. You send some material out one direction, and then it will continue going in the other. It will continue going in the other direction. Also, there's nothing to slow it down. So it's not like here in the atmosphere where you have to continually uh, push a plane has to keep running. Well, you get, the, you get the satellite going or spacecraft going out there. Once it's going, you know, get it going half the speed of light, it keeps going half the speed of light. And you don't need to keep accelerating it anymore. Really? If you can get it going that fast, you know, there's nothing to slow it down. There's no friction, no drag, nothing to slow it down. They can vary. They vary in size as well. You can see a little bit of a difference between these two. The one on the left is a little bit smaller. The one that's turned on its side. The other one is a little bit bigger. But they vary a little bit, but not, not tremendously. Elliptical galaxies have a much bigger range between the smallest and the largest. You know, it's a small one like this, giant one like this to scale. Spiral galaxies, it might be there's one this big and there's one this maybe twice as big, maybe half as big, but not, you know, 
10 or hundreds of times bigger. They're all closer in terms of size. Not that big. Not no. that big? No. Two, three times, yeah, you can get some variations like that, but not that many times bigger. Elliptical galaxies, you can. Now we're ready? So I know they're going to, now that I said that, they're going to keep asking questions all day. So, hey, <laughs> that's good. As long as you're asking good questions, I won't complain. Quiz is already made up and ready to go. It's not that one less thing I have to grade today. <laughs> all right. Well, we were looking at stellar masses last time, and I think I had shown you this that really tells you where the different star masses occur on the main sequence. So there's those O stars. They're way off to the edge here, so they're way up here. So this star would be like in the B range. O stars would be way off up over here. Um, extremely high mass going up to 50, 100 times the mass of the sun, about as massive a star as we've seen. And those end up way up in the upper left-hand side. The lowest mass stars end up way down in the lower right-hand side. And stars like the sun or a couple solar masses in between, in between those two. Now the other thing that we see is how many of each type of stars there are. Those big stars are very rare. Uh, they may not form quite as often. You don't form as large stars as much. And talking about before, they don't live as long. So if you take, form a billion stars, but, and say they're all evenly distributed, right? you get all, all the spectral types about evenly. But if the O stars only live for a few million years, and the M stars can live for hundreds of billions of years, maybe a trillion years, how many are you going to see if you're randomly picking them out? Come back a time later, all the O stars will be gone. So even if they're continuously forming, those O stars that formed 10 billion years ago are long gone. The M stars are still around. right? Even if they formed 10 billion years ago, they haven't come close to reaching the end of their life. The B stars that formed 5 billion years ago are all gone. The A stars that formed 5 billion years ago, they're gone. The G stars that formed 5 billion years ago, that's about our sun. So that's still around. So you see there's also going to be a bias as to which ones are going to be there just because they don't live as long. So it depends on how they form. When you're forming stars in a cloud of gas, how do they form? Do we form more big stars or more little stars? And how long does that star live? When we put it all together, we get something like this. This is the distribution of the masses of stars. The big giant chunk here, 41% are red dwarf stars. Stars less than a quarter the mass of the sun, so very, very tiny stars, are the vast majority of stars that exist. We add in the next chunk, 41 and 28, gets us up to 69%. That gets stars up to half the mass of the sun. Add in one more chunk, get up to the mass of the sun. So how many stars are the mass of the sun or less? You end up with, six, what, 88% of the stars or the mass of the sun or less. So all those big stars that you see out there, things like uh, Betelgeuse is about eight or so times the mass, seven or eight times the mass of the sun. So it's about in this blue range. Uh, Rigel is in the about 15 times the mass of the sun. It's in this little tiny range. You're getting most of those big stars that you see there are in that fractional, that little tiny 1% that's you know, everything else there, all those big stars. And again, for a couple reasons. Partially because we don't form probably quite as many of them 
when stars are forming and they don't live as long. So every single one of these stars that has ever formed in the history of the universe is still here. So they're all still here. So even the ones that formed 10 billion years ago, 12 billion years ago, 9, 10, they're all still here. Whereas all of these stars, these Rigel-like stars say, only 0.3% of the stars that we see are all gone unless they formed within the last few million years. Yes, sir? Question 6 on the lab we did on Friday. Like uh-huh. I think I just answered it for you, yeah. Yep. Yep. So, so just giving you an idea of what kind of stars we see, the stars that you go and look out there and look at at night are not the typical stars that exist in the universe. Most of the stars in the universe, look at where our sun lies here. Our sun is one of the bigger stars in the galaxy. Not compared to the ones you see, but compared to all of them, most of the stars, the vast majority, are much, much smaller than the sun. So, that was about all we had left to in chapter 10. Questions on that? Oh, that's not what we needed to finish to do the quiz. Well, that's going by our galaxy specifically. So, could other galaxies be different? Possibly, but we don't have a good reason as to why they'd be different. Why they would be different. Why would another galaxy form lots of big stars or anything? But the bias, the main difference is the time they live. So even in another galaxy, the, gal- the stars aren't going to live near as long. So you're still not going to, you're still not going to have a lot, of, you're not going to find a galaxy where you've got, you know, 90% of it is all big stars. To find something like that, I can't say, I couldn't see how. Just because, unless the stars are, unless the galaxy is just forming, and you're forming all the stars now, and you ha- you're, it's formed within the last million years, so none of the stars have had a chance to die, then there's a possibility. Anything that's older, you wouldn't have had the time. All the stars would be gone. What about galaxies that are like, say, tw- uh, 12 billion light years away? That, like, where like, they're already like, long dead, but like. Well, then we're seeing them as they were 12 billion years ago. So we do see that there is a bigger concentration of blue stars. The problem is. When you get that far away, you can see the light and you can get some evidence from this type of star. Those things are long invisible. There's no way you can begin to see and count those. So we have to use our galaxy as the template because it's the only place we can see those stars. Now, could our galaxy be unusual? Well, yeah, it could. There could, but I don't think you're going to find changes, you know, maybe this isn't 40%, maybe it's 30%, maybe it's 50%. I don't think you're going to find one where it switches and you're going to find, well, this is only 2% of the stars. That I don't think is a possibility. Could I be wrong? Yeah, I've been, been wrong lots of times, so I certainly could be, but I don't, I don't see that. Did you have a question back there, sir? Uh, never, or, mind. never mind. Okay. All right. Well, let me do the summary here and then we'll get on to the rest of Chapter 10. Um, again, we talked a lot about distances. started, started talking about distances in this chapter. Uh, How to measure the distances to the stars. We used parallax and looking at the angular shift of a nearby star compared to a uh, more distant star. We looked at the brightness, apparent brightnesses and absolute brightnesses. Apparent brightness is what we see here on Earth. That's the one we like to try to get because all I got to do is look out there at the sky and see how much light is coming from that star. It's very easy to measure that. The absolute distance or absolute magnitude depend, or absolute magnitude depends on the distance. So in order to get the true brightness, we have to know the distance. And that's one of the very difficult things to find. 
Spectral classes tell us about the temperatures. That's that OBAFGKM sequence. O stars being the very hottest stars, M stars being the very coolest stars. And there was a relationship between the size of the star that we looked at, how luminous it was, how much energy it's putting out, and how hot it was. So you could have a, a, very, a star that is you know, very, very faint, but very hot, telling us it's a very small star. You could have a star that's extremely bright, but very cool, telling us it's a very large star. So you can get relationships between the size of the stars and how bright and hot they are. Can a specific star tell you You could you if you found the same type of star, you could. So I mean, if you found a star here in our galaxy and you could measure the distance, find out how bright it is, and you found a very similar star in another galaxy, you could then use that because you've determined the distance to one. You could use that and say, well, that bright that star is so bright in our galaxy, it's going to be just as bright in the other galaxy. So we know how bright it is, and now we can do a distance. That's actually how we first measured the distances to galaxies. But you can't just direct just from one star isn't going to really tell you anything about the distances, anything directly about the distances. You're going to need some kind of pattern like that, something some sort of comparison. HR diagram I'm going to come back to in a minute here. And we're going to look, that was plotting luminosity and temperature. So you looked at the luminosity of a star, how bright it is versus how hot it is. And we found that most stars lie on the main sequence. So a uh, line that went from the upper left-hand side and curved down to the lower right-hand side. And that's where we find about 90% of the stars. Distance ladder. Again, we just barely started that. We started it with radar ranging. We looked at parallax, measuring the angular shifts. We now have spectroscopic parallax, which uses the HR diagram. So we can actually use that, the HR diagram with the main sequence there, and tell you that if you determine the spectral class of a star, you then know how bright it is. Remember, this was luminosity and this was temperature. I'll draw you a much better one here in just a couple of minutes. But if you know that temperature or color or spectral class, you can figure that out. You then know how bright that star really is. And you can use that to determine the distances. In terms of determining the mass, that's very difficult to get. It's pretty easy to measure the temperatures. Not so bad to get luminosities. You can work on that. Sizes you can get pretty well. But masses are really a tough one to determine. You can see numbers where masses are determined of a star and it might be, well, it's somewhere between 8 and 20 solar masses. It's a big difference, right? 8 solar masses, 20, that's, that's more than a factor of 2. It's just because it's so difficult to be able to measure those. It's a very rough estimate as best we can get. But that mass, the only way we can measure the mass of any star is if it's in a binary system. If it's not in a binary system or doesn't have a planet orbiting around it that we can detect, we have no way to get the mass. So if you see a star there all by itself and there's no planetary system and there's no other stars orbiting it, the only way you can then get the mass is say, well, it looks a lot like this star. You know, it's about the same spectral class as this star. Maybe it's about the same mass. That's about all you can do with the majority of the stars. Unless you have something else orbiting it, then you can use Kepler's laws to be able to determine the mass. 
And the big determinant is the mass. It tells us where it lies on the main sequence, where that star is going to end up. The very massive stars will end up in the upper left-hand side and the very low-mass stars in the lower right. So, ten chapters down and some to go. Question, sir? Yes. Somebody definitely doesn't want a quiz, I see. No, I just have a lot of questions. That's good. Yeah. Really clear style of Paul Yeah? So, <laughs> um, go ahead. So, are there planets around a lot of the other stars in this kind of thing, too? Or Likely there are, yes. We've only detected 8,900 now. Oh yeah, it's 8,900. It's pushing, pushing towards 1,000. There are 8 or 900 confirmed uh, planets. There's a big mix. There's a lot of Jovian ones. There's a lot that are Earth size or super Earth size, meaning they're a couple times, the, two or three times the size of the Earth. But there's a lot of them that have been detected now. Yeah. Actually, you do. You find a lot of uh, Jovian planets that are closer to the sun than we find them in our solar system. So unusual compared to what we see, what we see in our solar system. But there's a lot. There's a lot of them that have been detected. A lot of them that have been detected now out there. In the last 20 years or so, you know, 20 years ago there would have been, you know, a handful. Now it's you know, 25 years ago it would have been none outside our solar system. We think they're there. But now there's you know hundreds that are being discovered, and you come back in 20 more years, it'll probably be you know thousands or tens of thousands. Oops. Give me one second, then I'll go ahead. Yeah, sort of like the eclipsing binary when they pass in front, when this when the planet would pass in front of the star, it would dim it a little tiny bit, and our technology is now enough that we can be able to to measure that. Yeah. Oh, go ahead. Yeah, if you can determine the orbit of the planet around it, then you can determine the mass. So once you have enough observations of the planet to determine how long it takes to orbit and about how far it's away it's orbiting, then you can use that to determine the mass as well. As long as you've got something else orbiting it. Yes, sir? So out of the stars we know of, there's like, like eight or nine hundred planets. Five, six hundred? Don't some of those some of those have multiple, some of them have five and six planets around them, so some of them are Jovian, some of them we detect are like Jupiter, some are like the Earth. Well, how would we know if there was like proper conditions for life from like this far away? We couldn't. The only thing we could know is if they're about close enough to their star to have liquid water. Whether that means anything else about it, whether it has an atmosphere, what kind, we can't, we can't tell anything about that yet. The Goldilocks zone, yes, where the temperature is just right. Just right to get water. <laughs> shouldn't there be? Yeah, shouldn't we see like billions out there? They're hard to see. How, how hard or how easy are planets to see? That's the problem. They're tiny. They're not Remember how hard, I told you about how bright the sun is, right? If we took the sun 20 parsecs away, it would be invisible to the naked eye. A planet would be much fainter than that. At 20 parsecs, about 60 light, year, 60 light years, you wouldn't be able to see it with the naked eye. And that's a big distance, but not big within the size of our solar system. So, More questions? More questions? Yeah. No, so <laughs> a lot of the stuff that 
insects that we're seeing in the sky. They're not I was honestly not expecting that we'd get to the quiz anyway, but so. <laughs> but you can keep going. If you've got good questions, keep going. I think this one's a good one. Yeah. I thought your other ones were good too. They're not, they're not. <laughs> they're related, they're topical, they're related. That's great. I don't, I don't mind. So the specs that we see, a lot of times they're not the stars, they're like the galaxies. Depends. What do you mean when we see the specs that we see when we see up there? Yeah, well, the pictures that I showed you today earlier? Yeah, you couldn't see the individual stars in those galaxies. No. Right. Very close galaxies, you can see some. But most of them you can only see the the combined light of the stars. That's it. You don't you don't actually see the individual stars. So same with the planets, you and the planets around a star here, you can see the combined light of the star and the planet, and that's it. You can't see planet, star, and planet next to each other. You'll never be able to. We don't have anything close to the technology to be able to do that. A couple hundred to thousand. Um, most of the big bright ones can be hundreds or hundreds or a thousand light years away. Rigel, Betelgeuse, I think are five to five hundred to a thousand. I don't remember the exact numbers, but you're talking hundreds to a thousand, but the galaxy is a hundred thousand light years across. So they're still they're still in our backyard. <coughs> a lot of stars, though. A lot of stars. That's a lot of stars. <laughs> okay, we ready for the ready? HR diagram? Yes. Okay. Is this kind of like the HR block? The HR. <laughs> <laughs> Want to talk about taxes too, or no? <laughs> All right. Let's put an HR diagram together. So that's what we're going to kind of build. Now I've shown you the HR diagram, but I kind of want to break it down into a lot more detail here and really show you what you're doing. So draw you a nice big HR diagram up here. And in order to do any kind of graph, you've got to have the two axes. And what are you plotting on the two axes? So on the horizontal ax axis, you're plotting some kind of temperature. So one of the things you can plot is the temperature. If you know the temperature of the star, You can plot that. Plot it backwards. I'm sorry. Yeah, there's a couple things you can plot, but temperature is one thing you can plot. There's a couple different things that I'm going to show you there. But yeah, temperature is another one. Temperature uh, color index is another one you can plot. Temperature increases in that direction. Just to be confusing, temperature, the hot stars are on the left-hand side, the cool stars are on the right-hand side. So when you typically do a graph, you always put the small numbers there and the big numbers here. Not so when you do temperatures on the, on the HR diagram. The temperature is the hottest stars. You start out with big numbers, 30, 40,000 degrees here, and you go down to about 3,000 degrees. You can also, now temperature is a tough number to get. You don't just observe a star and get its temperature. There are ways to calculate the temperature based on observations, but it's not something you directly observe. So typically an astronomer who plots the temperature is someone who is doing theoretical HR diagrams. They might be doing calculations on a computer. Well, if you're doing calculations, you get the temperature directly. So that would be what you would plot there. So temperature is one thing you can plot, but whatever you plot on here is really measuring the temperature. You can plot the spectral class. Again, still the hotter stars, the O stars over here, the cooler stars, the M stars down here. 
So you can plot the spectral class, and you can also plot, as you mentioned, the color index. Which is written as capital B minus capital V. Color index actually increases in that direction. Temperature still is to the left, high temperature is still to the left, low temperature is still to the right, but the color index number actually goes the direction you'd think a number should go on a graph. Now, sorry. Oh, that's the next slide. So, what's coming up here? What, is, what do we mean by the color index? The color index, the, ble- the B is the magnitude in a blue filter. So it's essentially a filter that looks at only a very narrow band of the blue part of the spectrum. And you measure the magnitude. How bright is the star in the, in the, through that filter gives you a magnitude. How bright is it in the blue part of the spectrum? The V is the magnitude in a visual filter, which is actually part of the yellow. Looks towards the yellow portion of the spectrum. So you measure two magnitudes. That's pretty easy to do. You look at the star, you look at it through this filter, find out how bright it is, get a magnitude. Let's say you measure B to B, oh, let's do 2.5, 2.5. So relatively bright in the blue part of the spectrum. Let's say that V is 1.5. Is it brighter in the blue or brighter and brighter in the yellow? Brighter in the small numbers, brighter. Remember, magnitudes are backwards. So the smaller number is brighter. So it's brighter in the yellow portion of the spectrum. So when you subtract these two, you do B minus V, 2.5 minus 1.5. That's why I picked out those numbers you'd get that for this star, the color index is positive 1.0. A positive color index is going to end up towards this side and is going to be a red star. The bigger the number is, the redder the star. So the larger larger means a redder star. Zero would mean it's just it's sort of in the middle. It's just as bright in the blue as in the visual part of this part of the spectrum. No, it's, it would be it would be on the on the temperature scale it would be a relatively hot star. The sun is about plus 0.4, so this would be a very red star, a plus 0.1. The sun would be about a plus 0.4. A zero would be a relatively hot star. You get a few of the hottest stars that we actually get this to be negative. So you could actually have a case where the blue magnitude, say, is 2.3 and the V magnitude is 2.5. Now where is it brighter? Now it's brighter in the blue, right? That's the smaller number. Smaller number, brighter. Magnitudes are determined to confuse everybody like that. But now if we did B minus V, 2.3 minus 2.5 is negative 0.2. That's a blue star. And that's, that's what you were plotting on Friday. Those blue stars ended up way over here on this edge. 
the stars with the big numbers that go up to one, that go up to one, one and a half or so are very red stars. This is the way astronomers actually make the measurements. This is a very easy measurement to make because you can do a whole bunch of stars at once. You just look at them all in the blue filter, measure how much light is coming from them in the blue, get a magnitude for each, measure them all, now switch filters, take the same picture, the same part of the sky with your yellow filter, and measure that all the brightness is there. You get all this big table of magnitudes, your computer goes and subtracts them all, you don't have to do it by, manually by hand here, and you get a whole bunch of color indices that tell you the temperatures. So it makes it very easy to plot. To get the temperatures, you then have to take that color index and convert it to a temperature. So you're not going to get that directly. But you can see this is a little bit easier than going through, for example, and looking at all the spectra. Try to look at all those spectra to be able to determine the spectral classes. That's a little bit harder. Still doable, but the color index is a very easy way to be able to plot those. And that's what we did on, on Friday. That's what you plotted in class on Friday. So positive index is a redder star. That's way down here. Negative index is a bluer star. All right, how about the other axis? On the other axis, so there's three things you can plot here. There's a couple things you can plot here. You can plot the luminosity. So you can plot the bright stars with the brighter stars up here and the fainter stars down here. Right? So if you're plotting luminosity, how bright they are relative, say, to the sun, you would have the sun somewhere here in the middle. You'd have stars that are much fainter than the sun. You'd have stars that you know, might be you know, half the luminosity of the sun, a quarter, a tenth. You'd have stars that might be ten times, a hundred times the luminosity of the sun. So you can actually look at both of, you can measure that. So that's one thing you can measure. Again, luminosity is not something we see directly. So like the temperature, if someone is plotting a graph of temperature versus luminosity, it was probably a theoretical calculation that was done. Just because it's not the number that you easily see. What we really get, the two numbers that we can get, are the magnitudes. And you can plot the absolute magnitude. And sometimes you can plot the apparent magnitude. Now, don't forget when you plot the magnitudes, like we did on Friday, they go backwards. So luminosity goes that way. If you plot the magnitudes, the numbers increase that way. Still bright stars at the top and faint stars at the bottom, but numerically you're going to be putting the small numbers up at the top and the big numbers at the bottom when you're doing magnitudes. When can you do uh, apparent magnitudes? You did some on Friday when you plotted those graphs. You could do apparent magnitudes then because all those stars were in the same clusters. And if all the stars are in the same cluster, they're all the same distance away from us. Well, not exactly right. The cluster is big and some of those stars might be hundreds of light years closer. And if you're looking at a real big cluster, you know, tens, twenty, thirty light years closer. But essentially they're all the same distance from us. Just as if we're talking about plotting something from here to Los Angeles. You know, if you're talking about distance to Los Angeles, does it really matter where in Los Angeles you're talking about when you're starting from Harrisburg? Matters when you get there and you're that close, but you know, 10 miles this way, 10, 10 miles that way, out of you know, how many thousands of miles across the country, big deal, right? Matters when you get there, but it doesn't matter in the, in the long run. In the short run, at least, when you're further away, same thing with the apparent magnitudes. All those stars in those clusters are essentially going to be the same distance away from us. If the cluster is, 
you know, say 5,000 light years away from us, but some stars might be 10 light years away, further away, or 10 light years closer. Big deal, right? What's 10 light years out of 5,000? What's 10 miles out of 5,000 miles? Big deal, right? If you're going to travel 5,000 miles, you'd mind if you got to travel 10 more? What's the big deal, right? Now, if you're close, it makes a big difference. If you've got a really close cluster, then it would make a difference. But for apparent magnitudes, you can plot in those special cases. Star cluster is just a grouping of stars. Uh, any stars that are grouped, typically with a star cluster, they are stars that form together, when what we mean is a star cluster. Some of them may be permanently bound together, and some of them may not be. They may have been formed together, and they may be slowly spreading apart and dissipating. Our sun was probably part of a cluster like that at one point, and it's sort of wandered away. All right, so next, what do we get when we plot those? Well, we find a main sequence. So there's the main sequence. Going from the upper left to the lower right hand side, we find uh, red giants over here. So the red giant stars, they're up off the main sequence. We also find the white dwarf stars down here. And not a lot in between. The vast majority of the stars, if you add up you know, all the stars that you see, you know, it's 90% and 9% and 1%. Anything you find any place else outside of those is the rounding errors in those numbers. So pretty much you see all the stars here. You see uh, white dwarf stars down here below the main sequence, much fainter than the main sequence stars. You see the red giant stars up above that are much larger. And yet I'm including in that things like supergiants, which are even rarer, which would actually be technically slightly above that. Trying to group it together here just for the basics of the, of the, of the HR diagram. But that's what you'd see. You'd see you know, most of the stars, the vast majority of them here on the main sequence, some in the giants, some up even here in the supergiant phase, a bunch in the white dwarf section. What did I have next? Yep. What else do we learn? Well, I told you last time we learned about the mass of the stars. So you can learn something about the mass. The more massive stars are up here on the main sequence. The lower mass stars are down here. Once they get off the main sequence, it gets very hard to tell the masses. Because a star like the sun can end up in a red giant phase. A star ten times more massive can also end up in the red giant phase. And will at some point. So it's much harder to tell the masses directly just by looking at the stars. When they're on the main sequence, you can. And our sun ends up you know, somewhere in the middle there. But the HR diagram so tells you a little bit about the masses if you're on the main sequence. It does tell you about the sizes. All the main sequence stars are roughly the same size. Yeah, these may be a tenth the size of the sun, and these may be ten times the size of the sun. But comparatively to everything else on this, they're roughly the same size. So a little bit bigger than the sun, a little bit smaller, but all pretty close. As you get further below the main sequence, you get much cooler, much, much smaller stars. White dwarf stars are incredibly tiny. 
mass of the sun but the size of the earth. When you get up to this side you get larger and larger stars as you go diagonally up. So up in here you get your largest. You get the largest stars that you can find. So as you go up towards this corner. So the very biggest stars are way up here, those very giant red supergiants. Uh, what was the one when we looked at? Vy Canis Majoris or whatever that we looked at up there, the very largest star would be way up towards that corner of the HR diagram. Those would be the largest stars that we would see. So we can learn just by having this diagram, we can learn things about a star. We can learn something about its mass if it's on the main sequence. We can find out where it goes. It tells us something about the size. And we will eventually learn that it tells us something about you know, where the star is in its life. So sun here on the main sequence is you know, right in the prime of its life. Where is it going to end up later? It's going to change. Its, ma its temperature is going to change. Its luminosity is going to change. And it will move from being here on the HR diagram up into the red giant phase. And I'm going to kind of skim through that on Friday before I go ahead and do the rest of this and then give you your quiz Friday. So now I can make a harder quiz. I didn't tell you that, did I? No. Oh, good. I was supposed to say that first, wasn't I? Of course, the quiz is also already made and printed, so if I make it harder, I have to do work. Hmm. Yes, sir. No. <laughs> nope, nope, nope. Well, I'm just in a very negative mood today, I guess. No, 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 no. <laughs> Maybe. No, I, th I think you would do real good on this quiz. And those who took the class before know what my last quiz is. The last quiz is the same in all the classes. It's a really easy one. So, I tell you exactly what the answers are before you take it. And usually people still get 12. Once in a while they don't, but you know. So, all right. Well, I will f we'll work on to finish this up on Friday. The quiz will definitely be on Friday then.